Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. And we're a content partner to the no longer new BridgeDetroit.com because we are celebrating our one year anniversary today. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Gibbons-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms because we drop a new episode every week. So be sure to turn on those notifications. Now, over the weekend, the nonprofit think tank, Detroit Future City, and their Center for Equity Research and Engagement released their State of Economic Equity in Detroit report. The report is a follow-up to the brief they released last October, and it uncovers the uneven economic growth that Detroit has experienced, especially when you segment the data by race. Here to talk to us about the report findings, the indicators, and the policy recommendations is the CEO of Detroit Future City and a friend to this show, Anika Goss. Anika, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Hey, thank you, Orlando and Donna. I really appreciate being here this evening. We're happy to have you back. We can't believe that it was last October when we last had you on talking about uh, the, the statement, the precursor to what we are seeing over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the vision statement, what was really excited about that um, was that we engaged over 500 Detroiters and 50 of 50 kids as part of that 502. Uh, and and let them really direct what it was that uh, how they envisioned an, a more equitable Detroit. What does inc inclusive growth look like for them? What should the priorities be that we need to measure over time? And I think they nailed it on the head. So everything that you see from this new report that has 26 indicators and six categories of, of, uh, of equity, all of that came directly from those meetings. Wow, we're, we're, gonna, we're excited to get into the report. That's gonna come a little later on in the show. But first, it, is it the first unofficial day of summer in the city of Detroit? How does this blessed and sunny day find each of you? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I sat outside on my balcony for an hour um, during a meeting so I could experience summer because um, I, you know, it, it's actually worse now that I'm working from home. I'm gonna stop this soon. But when I work from home, I don't necessarily go outside at all during a workday. So I had to make sure I went outside and experienced it a little bit. It's beautiful out there. It's great to look outside. And I can't wait for an opportunity to actually spend some time there this week. Yeah, Anika, we're neighbors, and so did you. Did you have the opportunity to uh, go out on the river and check it out and see? I did just a little bit. It is glorious. I went outside. I went next door to a neighbor's house and had a glass of wine on their porch before I came over. So now I'm really ready uh, to talk <laughs> about the equity report. Um, but it was glorious. I mean, really, so warm, beautiful. Yeah, I, uh, I had an early meeting at the Click. All of my Detroiters know what the Click is. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, had some pancakes from the click uh, with a colleague from uh, the Rocket uh, family of companies. And I was leaving the click early this morning and I was like, I'm going to go to the water because the sun was out and it was bright and it was early. And so I, I stood at the water for about 10 minutes early this morning, a little bit before nine o'clock. And then I took a walk for lunch with my aunt and cousin along the river. It's just glorious out today. And so I'm happy. I've needed this influx of vitamin, of, yeah. of vitamin D. Yeah, sure. and it's just the beginning. I, I can't wait. Nothing yeah. summer, right, Donna? Not, not at all. Not I'll at all. In the office, Donna. We're going back. Let's go back. Well, you know, I was there all last week. Um, this week was uh, really busy. Let's just face it. Um, yesterday was tax day. And some of us, you know, had that taken care of a long time ago. And there were others. I think I sent Orlando a text. I don't put like, my business out in the street like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So none of what I was about to say is true. <laughs> but I, no, I, was, I did that. And then... Um, so I, I stayed, I had a lot of meetings. I had back to back to back to back meetings and I wasn't done. And then this morning, back to back to back to back meetings. So um, in order for me to get to the office, I don't get breaks anymore. You know, there used to be a time in your schedule where you had transition yeah. times. Yeah. And now if there is 15 minutes, there's no grace between meetings and I have to figure out. And now I have this online scheduling called Book, Bookable or something like that through Doodle where people can schedule themselves in. And, oh, no. Oh, no, it's great because when people ask me what time I'm available to meet, I just send them a link and I'm done uh, because it, it's a real pet peeve of mine having to try to find times to meet. I know that sounds silly, but I need a secretary and I don't have one. And so I have bookable, but I need Taking to work with that nonprofit life. We don't get, we yeah. don't get and secretaries I, in this nonprofit life. I got to automate whatever I can, but it's uh, the automation has made my life miserable. But anyway, I'm looking forward to being back in the office. We're opening up. Um, I think about 12 or 13 of us are coming back to work in June, June 1st. And I'm yes. super wow. excited. Yeah. That is exciting. That's super yeah. exciting. So, uh, definitely a, a lot to look forward to uh, returning to see your colleagues. Donna, when I was on the river, I ran into Josh Elling at, from uh <laughs> big today and I haven't seen him so it was just good to begin to see people again and there's nothing like a Detroit summer the challengers and the charges are revving up let me tell you yeah <laughs> <laughs> listen it's time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about if you have pieces that you want discussed on authentically Detroit you can hit us up on our socials at authentically Detroit on Facebook Instagram and Twitter or you can email us at authentically Detroit at gmail.com Donna, fresh off the press. Fresh off the press, MEDC hires economic developer from New Orleans as new CEO. And this is brought to us by Chad Livinggood from Cranes, Detroit. Um, so, wow, yet another economic development person or planning person from New Orleans. New Orleans and Detroit have been compared a lot. <laughs> and it's just really interesting to me because um, when you bring somebody from another municipality, there's a question I have always, have they figured it out? You know, and we're talking about economic equity and I would love to do that comparison report. We look at economic equity between Detroit and New Orleans and then Michigan versus New Orleans because it feels to me as though we are at times bringing in people with a mess 
message and an expectation um, that, that, you know, may or may not make sense. So, I mean, Master, listen, he's a black man. I'm always happy to see a brother get a job. He's, uh, he liked through the work of economic development in Michigan to first winning a division title in the Great Lakes region before moving on to bigger competitors. And, oh, you know, okay. that kind of thinking never goes well for U of M graduates because we think we are national ready all of the time, regardless of whether we are or not. We're not just trying, oh, well, you know, Great Lakes would be great, but we're not, you know, that localized in our thinking. Um, but I, you know, the question I always have is, what does winning look like? Like, how do we know that we win? I wonder if any of the indicators that he is being judged by and that he's trying to reach are at all related to what's in your report, Anika. Can and I make this long work a little bit, Donna, though? I want, I want to say for our listeners that MEDC is the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Um, and the new hire as the head of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, his name is Quentin Messer Jr., right? Oh, yes. And his hiring is, it concludes a nine-month national search. Go ahead, Donald. Right. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for um, bringing those facts to the table. Um, he's a, a strategic thinker with a bold vision for Michigan and someone who believes in the power of economic development, says Awanadi Kovina, chair of the MEDC executive committee, and I hope I got that name right. I can't stress enough how much I believe Quentin is the right person at this time, and the governor agrees. Um, he brings a wealth of experience in this role and a clear passion for ensuring the benefits of economic development extend to everyone, Governor uh, Whitmer said Tuesday in a statement. So that's good. You know, there's this thought of inclusive economic development, but I always look at Sometimes the, um, the struggle or the, the, the tension between economic growth and economic fairness, and they don't always line up. Like we can have a growing economy and billionaires become bigger billionaires and poor people become more poor. So I would like to see what metrics are used to evaluate how well he did in New Orleans and what metrics will be used to evaluate his performance in Michigan so that we don't see a continuation of the kinds of things we're going to be talking about this evening. What are your thoughts on this, Nika? Uh, well, I'm not as current on all the events as you all are. So I'm just, I'm listening myself, but I will say that we have really good friends in the New Orleans data center. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they are like a cross between DFC and uh, data-driven Detroit. So they keep their eye on the data, but they have also uh, developed an equity metrics for New Orleans that they are tracking uh, pretty closely. And they are, um, so for example, they actually uh, wrote a recent report. It was pre-COVID, but one of their last reports pre-COVID um, was on, um, the difference, between, difference in investment mm -hmm. of uh, service employees uh, in New Orleans, which is their number one economy, is the service and tourism. Mm -hmm. And the companies that own, that you know, are making the investments there. So all the hotels, all the restaurants, the, the tourism industry, and the disparity is incredible. So um, it's, it's worth paying attention to. And so if you're interested, I think they would be 
perfect on your show. And, and I'm sure, you know, they're also really supportive and engaging. And, you know, New Orleans mm -hmm. loves, they're very protective of their people. So I'm sure they have nothing but good things to say about Mr. Messer. But um, I, I think we can probably get to uh, some of these uh, data points fairly quickly. And I also think you're right, um, Donna, that we, um, we need to pay attention and, and really set some standards for what we expect from our state agencies, um, even when they have the best of intentions and, uh, and, and really begin to set paths and goals ourselves for what investment looks like from the state and the federal government. You like, want to know what's, uh, what's interesting at the Detroit Future City Report and even thinking about um, our conversation with Kim Trent, Donna. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things about, you know, metrics and economic growth and all of that, here's, here's what I said. If you don't schedule and solve for race equity, in these initiatives, in these uh, metrics, in an explicit way, racism and white supremacy will always schedule itself because it is so mm. baked in to right. everything that we do that even if you have good intentions, if you aren't explicit in race equity, if you are explicit in equity, period, white mm -hmm. supremacy will continue to schedule itself. And so uh, right. While we have good intentions, we have to continue to disrupt our thought process, our traditional thought processes around maneuvering markets and moving the needle on economic growth and development and what that looks like and do it all through that lens because it's not yeah. going to work. It's not going to work if we don't. Right. right. And, you know, I want to just, um, I, I completely agree with that. I think that um, nobody says they believe in economic unfairness. I've never heard anybody say, you know what I, well, there are some people, but you know, nobody I would ever speak to, hope for, or listen to or respect. But the reality is that economic injustice is the root of um, our, our system. And it's really the root of capitalism, right? That um, somebody is going to be able to exploit labor and uh, resources um, to the greatest benefit possible. And um, and, and, and maximize their profit. That's seen as the American way. And so we look at that and we think that's great. But on the other end of that, that means that you've got to somehow deny something to somebody else in order to get mm, there. Mm, um, mm. You cannot have this thing where I'm maximizing my profit and maximizing social justice at the same time. And it feels to me as though the role of government is to somehow mediate that so that you can't just have runaway um, you know, profiteering. You've got to have controls on that. And those controls exist not just for the purpose of economic fairness, and that's certainly something that we should all be looking at, but also um, the sustainability, environmental justice. When we poison one part of the nation because we can, and because it's easier to poison than to dispose of something more easily or to produce something without producing those poisons, um, you're still creating harm. And um, that harm is not just to the people who are living in direct proximity, but to all of us. So I'm hoping that there's an a, 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 um, enlightened set of metrics. And if there isn't one, that we can somehow introduce some to this new 
um, executive. I also, the final thing I wanna say, sometimes we put black people in places and we celebrate who they are rather than what they're doing and what they represent. And so I wanna embrace him, welcome him to the state and at the same time, you know, let him like everybody else understand that in Michigan, we've got a big problem. We're about we to do. talk about what that is. And I'm hoping one of the first people he sits down with is, is Anika Goss Foster, so you can roll out this report to him Come and he on. understand the job ahead. <laughs> we wish hey. you the best of luck, uh, Mr. Messer. You have your work cut out for you and <laughs> welcome you to come on this show. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Show. I think, you know, one of the, so if you want to talk about like, what does MEDC invest in? They invest in jobs and they invest in corporate investment. And there are few, and I mean, they do other things too, but those are some of the primary um, goals of, of MEDC is how they direct resources to advance and stimulate local economies. And what we found in this report is that there are a lot of problems that things that we can do, right? In Southeast Michigan, things that are changeable. Like one of the, one of the things, we start the report actually, and I, just to give you some framing, is this okay now if I jump in? Let's, let's wrap this up. Yep, let's go ahead. Let me oh. introduce that segment. We can, um, we can do away with our second story. Listen, if you have stories that you want covered on Authentically Detroit, be sure to email us at Authentically Detroit on, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Anika, please go ahead and you know begin to lay the groundwork for what you were trying to solve for um, in the report. Yeah, so here's what we're trying to frame. So the report, the state of economic equity in Detroit is a pre-COVID framing, right? All of the data is pre-COVID. And why is that important? That's important because we need, when we get the post-COVID data, the 20 da 2020 data, the 2021 data, we're suddenly going, we're going to be shocked at what those numbers look like. But if we understand what the numbers look like pre-COVID, especially for Black people, and especially for Brown people, Latino people all over the state, and, but in particular in Southeast Michigan, we will be really, really clear as to what we should be expecting, right? And so we start the report with what the region looks like. The Southeast Michigan, the 11 county region is stronger than most major cities across the country, major regions across the country. It's growing, it was growing faster than ever. Whereas Detroit's growth generally was declining. Okay. And what's worse is the employment rate. Cause so then we go into employment, the employment rate, you know, we know that the employment rate was higher in the region and then lower in Detroit. But what was really important to look at, look at was not only the unemployment rate, because we can look at that, but mm -hmm. unemployment are just those people who are actually actively looking for work. But for Detroit, unlike other cities, the people who are not looking for work is like 31%. And so that is the problem. People who are able to work, but not even looking for work 
pre-COVID mm. was a problem in and of itself. And so there's a disconnection. What we can't accept is this idea that everyone's, you know, there are just no jobs because we know that there are jobs. There are jobs available, but for some reason, we're not able to get people into those jobs and we're not paying attention to a huge segment of the population. The other thing that we looked at that was, did you have a question, Donna? Donna, you have to unmute yourself, Donna. You're on mute. <laughs> oh boy. Um, no, I, I did have um, something I just I wanted to say about that briefly. Um, and I, I want to go back to something. I want to move forward talking about the jobs and the for some reason. But before we even get there, I do want to talk about MDEC and the role MDEC um, plays in helping select sites and locations for where, 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 um, where they invest. The fact that um, they, they provide tax incentives. And so MDEC is more than just yeah, rah, 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 trying to get business, but really helping to create an environment where businesses have control, where they can minimize how much they spend, and they can do everything they can to incentivize people coming here. And it feels to me as though that means that rather than saying, let's look at locating a place, jobs in a place where people need jobs, it's let's locate. Um, jobs in a place where you don't have to spend as much money as you would. And then let's give as many economic incentives as possible without also investing in transportation. And those are structural issues designed to maximize profit of businesses, mm -hmm. while at the same time, minimizing the ability of Detroiters to compete for those jobs because of transportation and other barriers. Um, so when you yeah. look at this for some reasons, do you look at race as being a primary reason? Of where job investment, of where jobs are and job investment? No, we so mm -hmm. we didn't look at that specifically. We looked, at, we did mm -hmm. look at the cost to commute and how people were commuting. And we disaggregated that. Um, oh, I'm not actually sure. We did that by ge geography. So Detroiters versus the region. Some of this data just isn't available by race. So you have to be really clear about that. And there's one thing that we want people to rely on for DFC is that our data is accurate. So if, if, we, if we can't find it uh, regarding race, if we can't disaggregate it by, by race, it means it's either not available or it's not reliable. Um, but what we did do was really focus on how far people were commuting and how much people were spending on commute. And what we know is that Detroiters, which seems like sort of an obvious number or sort of an obvious data point that Detroiters spend more money on commuting both by public transportation and by uh, personal auto, but since we created this, we created this indicator, it's a custom indicator just for us that we will continue to uh, follow over time. We will be able to, we'll be able to use that when we're talking about where jobs are and how far away they are from where Detroiters are living. 
and what we need to do to close the gap on the cost to commute. Because cost, what cost to commute does show and contributes to is the cost burden of housing. And that I think is really a bigger, is not a bigger issue because I think what you're saying is really, really important, but it is a significant issue for how we determine where and access to the jobs that are available. What we really looked at, Donna, um, uh, was the, the disparity in wage for the jobs available. And that to us was really, really problematic. So whether it was an hourly rate without a college degree or the hourly rate with a college degree, the disparity is almost double. Not almost, it's more than double. It's $17 an hour if you don't have for the average Detroiter if you don't have a college degree. And it's $32 an hour if you do have a college degree. And if you're black, it's $26 an hour, right? If you're a woman, if you're a white male, it's $39 an hour if you have a degree. And if you're a woman, regardless of your race, about $28 an hour, $9 difference. And so that woman- Well, that would suggest to me though, that, that, that would suggest to me that Detroiters are being paid more than a living wage, we call a living wage, and we don't really need to do anything around wage adjustment here. If um, people without college degrees are making on average $17 an hour, um, and it feels like that's not what I'm seeing in the local job market. So I'm trying to understand the disparities. Yeah, so 17, what we're saying is $17 an hour is not a decent wage. Well, I, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with that. But, if, but I, I, I'm just, are you saying that Detroiters earn on average $17 an hour? No, well, I'm saying without a high school degree. Yes. So you're saying that I, I would... So if seventeen dollars those, are, that, those are those is, that are working, because <laughs> remember a third of that the city would be is not the average. Working. So what about the people who work in um, places where there's so many places where people are earning twelve dollars an hour, eight dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour, who are earning a lot less, who are working full time? Seems right. like we have a lot of those people. Where are we at all tracking them, or are they getting lost in the analysis? Well, I don't think they're getting lost in the analysis, but you would take it by the average wage. I'm trying to pull up the, the actual report so I can show you mm -hmm. a little bit better. But um, I think what you're finding is, because we also really looked at part-time jobs versus full-time jobs in Detroit. But I also think, Donna, mm -hmm. it, what we really need to do, we need for people to be making a middle wage should be considered $18 or more, 18 to $19. Mm. And what we're accepting is that $15 is, is a good salary. And we're touting and that. And you're making either more that. or less. Yeah, and we're touting yeah. that. Like, I guess I would like to. Not, it's not enough I, to live on. I'm not going to disagree with that. I think that 35 thousand dollars a year which is that seventeen dollars an hour um seems like it's higher than many working people who i know and maybe right. i just don't know enough people without high school diplomas i think that yeah. for some people even getting the 15 
is really, really hard. And so I think that there's pockets of people who are still earning minimum wage of something like nine seventy five an hour in our community. and and that's a good number of people who are working. And so many people seem to be discouraged from even participating in the workforce because of the wages that they can earn. Um, and we have very low workforce participation in Detroit in comparison to other areas, wouldn't you say? I, oh, Orlando. definitely. I, oh, yeah. you're asking Orlando. No, Orlando, it seems, I thought he was talking and he was muted. I just wasn't well, sure well, if he was going okay, to talk to us. The question, yeah. Go ahead, Anika. I, I, you know, I think what might be interesting, Donna, is to see if, if it's possible, if we could get the data um, by uh, even area of the city, right? And, and that down to that census tract level where people are living and how much they're making is harder to do. I think what we know is that um, there are entire, people are not making enough in Detroit. And I would agree because that, that level of cost burden. So if you're the number of people that are, that are making $10,000 or less, which is, you know, now we're looking at well below poverty level and still being 30% to 50% cost burden is, it's, it's way too many people that are living in Detroit, right? And so you don't really, in Detroit, you're not even seeing a cost burden, a relief from cost burden in Detroit until you get <laughs> to like 52,000 or 50,000 a year. You begin to see some relief, some relief at 35, but it's really 50,000 where you begin to see the, the cost burden relief, where you begin to see people who are living comfortably. Anika, did the report call for um, the, the economy on the black market or the unofficial economy, like those folks who have skills that are leveraging that skill for income, but uh, not doing so like in a, you know. You know, I know what you're talking about. And that data years ago, the problem is that it's very hard to track and it's also unreliable, right? And what we really wanted to do with this report is to get a baseline that we can begin to measure year over year and especially every three years. So when you get into the, um, I don't want to call it, black market, but it's the, the, the economy, underground. the underground economy, it is much harder. Um, it is much harder to track. What we did try to do, which would still not necessarily meet your underground standards, we tried in this report to track um, household savings mm -hmm. and uh, other, other non-wage um, related income. And the difference between that, between Detroiters and uh, people not living in Detroit, but you would also have to have reported that to the IRS. And I don't know how many underground economists, people who are working in the underground economy are often paying in cash and not necessarily reporting how much they're making to the IRS. That's, that's some of it why it's harder to track. I remember years ago, 
there was an attempt to do that to track the the uh, underground economy, and it was it was maybe it's a good study for Dmax because you really have to do you would have to do it by survey. Mm. Can I, speaking of baseline, because we, we went off on this job tangent, I want to ground our conversation in asking you to, you know, number one, summarize some of the key findings from the economic equity report, while yeah. also making sure you delineate for our listeners uh, the categories that you looked at versus the indicators and what, what the difference, what the differences are. Yeah. So what we really wanted to do was just organize the report by, by six different categories that we felt were directly impacting economic equity. And so it's um, basically, I can read them to you, it's income and wealth building, education, access to quality employment, health, business and entrepreneurship, and neighborhoods and housing. And as I think I said earlier, the reason that we chose those, um, a lot of it came out of the stakeholder reports that or stakeholder interviews and focus groups that we did this summer, uh, where people really felt like all of these things were integrated. And I think what was really interesting, when you begin to integrate those areas, you do see how they're connected, right? And I think we learned from COVID that the social determinants of health, how you, what is, where you were living, your level of cost burden, your ability to take care of yourself, access to healthcare, access to employee-based healthcare, all of those things can actually determine your quality of life and your ability to thrive. Um, and so then the indicators within each category, uh, we have ranging from four to eight uh, very specific indicators. And that's what we're gonna be tracking uh, on our data platform that we announced in, uh, in June um, at, the, at our equity forum with Drs. Andre Perry and uh, Derek Hamilton. My friend, Dr. Perry. Yes. And I don't know, so do you know, are you question. familiar? Are you familiar with Derek Hamilton I'm and his, some of his work? So he did the work on baby bonds and uh, black wealth. Um, I think you'll really enjoy him. Yeah, I'll look him up. Go ahead. So Anna. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that your data could not disaggregate um, where jobs were moving by race, that there's no data really that collects that. Um, no, that I, well, no, there's definitely data on race by jobs. Uh, but also I'm where sure. jobs are being created. Is there oh, evidence that, that no, jobs I, are being created? I know, I just said that we okay. didn't do that data. We didn't look at like where the economic investment, like where the actual jobs are, like where the companies are. We didn't look at that. You could, that's like another report that we could do that would just look right. at where are the job centers in Southeast Michigan and who is working at them by race. We can do that. And that's- Cause I think it's important. I think it's important to look at that and to try to explain some of this data 
somebody could look at this data and say the reason that black people are so far behind in um, housing wealth is because black people are economically or financially illiterate. Somebody could say that the reason that black people aren't making the same amount as white people is because black people don't value education. And in fact, that's what many people say. And so they mm -hmm. push the responsibility onto black people for failing to embrace the um, economic norms and to be part of the, the, the economic mainstream. There are other people who will look and say, wait a minute, we have policies and root causes that contribute to this disparity and we're not going to fix it by pointing out what's wrong with black people and you cannot educate yourself out of racism. We've got to attack racism at its root. I'm right. wondering if your report has a position that really helps explain the narrative so that when people look at it, they can't just use it like a Rorschach test and see what they choose to see when they look at our community. We talk a lot about systemic racism um, and actually in every section. Um, and I think we also, uh, as, and especially Donna in uh, lending practices and entrepreneurship uh, specifically, uh, we actually have a data, a, a, it's actually new data. We had, I'd never seen it before um, where we look at the average loan um, and mm -hmm. uh, the disparity in average in lending between um, Detroiters at versus the region, which can then tell you how uh, banks are make and financial institutions are making decisions about their lending. Um, and 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 that I think that also gets at a lot of what you're talking about. I definitely think, I mean, the whole idea of this report is that we can take one of these sections and do a deep dive. Our next deep dive that should be coming out later this summer is on mortgages. We want to be able to understand now that we know that there is a significant disparity in lending practices, we also want to know how that affects in mortgages and where people live. Because you could say the same thing that, you know, black, the black home ownership rate is significantly lower for black people more than any other group, whites or Hispanics. Right. And it would be easy to say, well, black people don't have good credit. And uh, only poor black people live in Detroit, clearly, because 54% of middle class African Americans live outside the city now. But what we also know and what we are, are going to explore this summer is what that mortgage rate looks like for Detroiters, for Black Detroiters and, and Hispanic Detroiters, because I think that there's probably something to say about alternative financing um, for homeownership in other ethnic communities that we're not using in Black communities. Well, and there's also like practices, right? So I talked to this woman today, this um, younger woman who moved to Detroit from another state. I'm not going to say where. Um, and she moved into one of the neighborhoods in Detroit that would not be considered a middle-class neighborhood on a nice block in a nice home and um, applied for store credit card. 
and received a denial because the house that she was living in did not have sufficient worth for her to receive consumer credit. Now, her income is good enough and her credit score is good enough. But, you know, she's, not, she's trying to research whether or not that's legal. And I know that there are factors that we don't know about that people take into account that help differentiate why some Black people were given um, bad mortgages and other ones were given predatory mortgages and other ones are given conventional mortgages, even though they had the same income and credit history. We know there's those practices, but you can't, a lot of the stuff we're looking at, you can't really document with any type of precision and data. And I worry about some of that going missing and um, the, the thrust of the response, not because of your report, but because of how people choose to see it being, let's educate people on finance. She doesn't need financial education other than maybe right. she should move to a suburban community so that she can be treated as equal. But she said, isn't that modern day redlining? And my question is, is there still redlining going on in the city of Detroit? And how would we know it if we saw it? You know, I know because it's illegal. And so nobody's going to say this is what we're doing, but people have experiences. And I'm wondering how we can sort of reinforce this narrative that yes, we do need to improve people's credit and do financial education, but we also have to change the way systems treat us so that we Absolutely. can at least be treated equally to other people like us. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that uh, alone is the problem. I'm so glad you said that because it's not just the amount of, um, it's not just the, the numbers of home ownership. And, you know, we have so many programs that are just focused on, oh, okay, home, we're, you know, we're just going to focus on housing and home ownership as if it's going to magically happen. When, if the disparities between um, between Detroiters and suburbanites, between African Americans, um, and, uh, and in terms of housing value, um, and uh, now too, right? The difference. Right. There's housing. so many other things that go yeah. into that. You, you, you. I, but I if, if we go back to housing. I, I was just going to say to Anika, I want to know who you're going to talk to about mortgages because as a young person, like in pre-approval, in the market looking, I am I am completely priced out of being able to adequately compete uh, in the markets that are uh, budding in these neighborhoods, in the neighborhood that I even grew up in to purchase a home. Like it is, <laughs> I really don't know I'm probably oversharing, but I really don't know what I'm going to do. Like it is, it is, yeah. it's crazy what's happening. And, you know, it's what's really interesting is that the, the difference in mortgages and values and home ownership rates across the city, because there's still whole sections of the city where there's no comparables, where there's, there's not no. been any homes so, mm -hmm. uh, sold in years. And, but are those the neighborhoods that you necessarily want to live in? Somebody's got to live over there. We got to do something, right? That 
So I'm looking forward to that. That's gonna. That's actually coming this summer. We're doing. We're gonna be partnering with. <laughs> we will. Uh, you know, John Gallagher about uh, ten years ago actually did that first in-depth mortgage study, um, and so he's gonna be working with us again uh, to be able to really do that hard-hitting analysis about where the banks are actually doing mortgages or not. We got a yeah. we got a question so, live from so, our, you know. I'm sorry, Donna, from our Instagram live from Chase Cantrell, who's watching and listening Chase. on Instagram live. He asked, in lieu of your last comment, Anika, what are our CDFIs doing? If banks won't lend, who's filling the gap? Right. <laughs> oh, okay. That's I mean, it. I think I think that it's a tough call, you know, because we, there isn't a lot of space to, there isn't a lot of space to move right now, I think. And the CDFIs that, the pressure that's being put on the CDFIs from the banks is that, well, they're a CDFI, they're a nonprofit, they should be able to do it on one hand. On the other hand, they're also saying to the CDFIs, you can only take so much risk in the amount of loans that you're giving. And so part of what we need to be able to do is to say the risk, what you're defining and how you're defining risk is drenched in systemic racism. It's yeah. drenched in old redlining and those old bad FHA practices. And I think that's where we need to really be able to push hard. I, I'm, I'm trying to work with one CDFI and I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the conversations that we're having where they're looking at not looking at appraisals, but I think that there's mm. also got to be a role for community development to serve Absolutely. as an intermediary so that if the risk is um, taken undertaken by the community development organization, we don't necessarily have to try to put poor people in the mortgage business. I know that everybody owning their homes and people having their own mortgage has been construed and certainly marketed by banks as the American dream. But having a mortgage did not work for us when we were selling them in the early 2000s, did not work for us. In fact, it caused a lot of loss. So maybe we need to look at other mechanisms for ownership. And um, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in, as you know, is pursuing um, some type of um, contract sales between nonprofits that are reputable to people in homes that allow them to bypass banking kinds of systems. But the other thing that I just wanted to bring back this issue of housing values and that disparity, yeah. because it was such a shock to me when I heard that somebody actually received it. And she's going to send me a letter, very, very reputable person who told me this today. But if it's true that some lenders are making decisions based on the value of the homes in the neighborhood where you live, does that mean that white people also have greater access to capital than black people do. Yes. And is that another form of redlining, even if you have good credit scores? So they won't say, hey, you know what? Listen, Donna, we don't like your blackness, but they'll say, well, the place that you live tends to produce these risk factors. We keep on having these workarounds and we've got to somehow acknowledge again that the systems are banking systems. The systems are credit systems. The systems are bigger than a lot of the things that we want to solve. And until we get at the systems and start fighting those systems, putting in a nice new person talking about economic growth and fairness is not going to change anything because the systems aren't changed. And I'm well, very interested in identifying some system solutions. 
when we look at, you know, why can't people get to jobs? Why can't we pass a regional transportation um, law that will allow for people to go from place to place in the region? Why is it that some communities have decided they don't want us in there? Is it because they don't want the job competition? And then you have people moving jobs into these bedroom communities where um, people from Detroit can't access them. We can, you know, and, and you know, the car insurance thing has gotten better. I have to admit my car insurance is a lot lower, but the cost of car ownership is still prohibitive for many people in our community. So Anika, um, in, the you know, just, class, in the glory in the, to, to that point down in the growing middle class report, didn't that report also specify that? most of the Detroiters who are employed are employed outside, outside of the city. Of the city. Hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Because that's where, that's where yeah. jobs are created. There but should be incentives the come, to create jobs here. The start is that most of the region comes here for work. So what we also know, I mean, part of it, of Detroit's, this disparity in wages between white Detroiters and black Detroiters is because the fastest growing industry in Detroit is uh, the financial sector. It's what's happening downtown. And so, but, but black Detroiters are not being hired for those jobs, which is something that we talked about in the black middle-class report. That, that we are missing. I feel like the black middle class report was, a pre was actually the precursor to a lot of what we said in this equity report, especially in that neighborhood section. So the neighborhoods that we lost, the middle class neighborhoods that we lost, the middle class neighborhoods that we gained, it, that I tell you, Worries me. Well, let me set this part up with the question so that you can okay. talk about it. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the loss of the middle class neighborhoods in Detroit over the span of the last 10 years, which the report specifies, and the popping up of new middle class neighborhoods. Looking at that map, it's absolutely polarizing. What we can conclude is that white folks are more likely to reside in you know, these middle class neighborhoods, especially the new ones. Number one, where are the black middle class families? The other thing that I see uh, is in most of the new middle class uh, neighborhoods, they happen to also be strategic investment areas on part of the city. What's happening? Right. Everything that you think is happening is what's happening. I mean, what we know that hasn't changed in three years is that 73% of white middle of white middle class households want to live in middle class neighborhoods. And only 23% of black middle class households and 24% of Hispanic middle class households want to live in those or choosing are choosing to live in middle class or have access or have access orlando just said he does not have access to right. the neighborhood he grew up in and so somehow my access to a mortgage may be masked as my choice which is how segregation works segregation is treated as if it's a choice and it's not but when you also have the mayor of this city not only using city resources and steering city resources to places that are middle class, i.e. increasingly white for the most part, but also steering private investment or private sector resources to those neighborhoods. 
is the city contributing to um, racial segregation and injustice through those policies? So maybe, I think that um, there's also, what we're also seeing though, are black middle-class households moving to the suburbs. The number is now up to 54%. Um, and so middle-class, some of our suburbs are actually becoming more welcoming in these neighborhoods um, than even in Detroit. I mean, so part of the thing, I, I, I don't, and maybe I'm being Pollyanna, Pollyannish about this, um, but I really think it's not an intentional, uh, you know, it's, it's not an intentional strategy to control the movement of Black people. I really think that it's more of unintentional development practices. Let's put money in in the places that we think are growing and they will they will grow, right? And is that always true with racism? Kind of, the kind of development that they are putting in there is also not uh, conducive for families, which is also the biggest problem, right? So these one and two bedroom unit rentals, because what's also gone up is um, white uh, home ownership in Detroit has has decreased, and white renters there are now more white renters in Detroit than there used to be because the neighborhoods that are going up there's more rental housing in downtown, in West mm -hmm. Village, in Midtown, and so that's just where they're building it. And so they they weren't even thinking about this is the impact this is going to have on the city as a whole. And so if we have an opportunity but if you don't now. Exactly. If we have an opportunity now to say, cut it out. And, and the state, if the state is going to get involved, they have to be, this is where they get involved. Because what the city will say is, well, we're only using the tools that we have available. We don't have a bunch of tools available to build single family homes where, that, where we can attract families. We only have multifamily. We didn't have transformational brownfields credits. We didn't have transformational brownfields. Can you hear me? Yeah. We didn't have transformational brownfield tax credits available either. And then we went to the state and we asked for them to create that That's as an right. incentive. Every That's time right. we've gone to the state, we have put our priorities on. Nobody ever says it's intentional, right? And I, but I, I think that I'd be lying if I said I did not believe that some people in this community and some people in leadership positions across this nation believe that when white people come back, that community is coming back. That one of the types of change that you wanna see is white people moving in. Our national media says Detroit is back and it's not because black people showed up. It's not because black businesses showed up. And so I think that people have unintentional into, I don't think people are saying, let me push black people out. But I do believe that there are people who believe that by diversifying the city and increasing the white population, that you are going to stabilize and grow the city. And again, it depends on the metrics you're measuring. And the other thing is that, you know, when people were blockbusting, they weren't saying, don't live next to black people because they smell or whatever. That's not the only thing they were saying. They were saying, if you don't move and sell your house now, you will lose value. 
the fight against Negro invasions was fought on the basis of economic value. As long as we allow economic growth to determine social justice equity, we'll never get there. We've got That's to be right. intentional. We've got to say, you know what? We understand that without putting my finger on this scale, it's going to work against Black folks, and therefore I've got to do it. And my question is, is this the first time anybody has pointed out to the mayor or to the administration that there is an inequitable outcome? Because oh, I certainly said it, and I know others have I too. It. And I, I, I mean, I think that we also have to give credit to the mayor's people in seeing things and, 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 and but, but beyond the mayor, because, uh, you know, we, let's move beyond him, right? Let's move beyond the politicians. The financialization, financialization of the city means that the city is beholden to bond markets, to bond investors, to trying to be credit worthy, to trying to meet standards and pores definition of credit worthy so that you can get a low bond rating so that your borrowing costs less. And somehow all of that meaning that the financial systems are driving social policy to some extent in our city. And then you have politicians who are making decisions based on that policy, based on state policy, based on these limitations. It feels as though it's, it's structural bigger than the people who are elected in office and they become um, the custodians of policies. Even if they disagree with it, it's kind of, kind of hard to push against it. Can you go to the mayor and say, hey, Mr. Mayor, yeah, it has let's to be not focus on economic growth. Let's focus on black people aren't getting their fair shake. Well, Can I you think do we that should focus on get... economic growth, but with the people that are here, we need to grow. The economic growth that needs to happen is with the seventy-eight percent of black people that are already here. All right, and, you know, I hear you. This is in jobs, in housing all of it. And what we've shown is that it's possible. In one year, infant mortality went down five percentage points. We were so, we were, had to hold up the report because our data, what we thought it was the, 2018 was the most recent data. And we thought, oh, okay, we've got this number. And then, and it was at 17%. And these numbers are still super high. It's twice as what it is for the state, for the state and the country. But in a single year, because of public-private partnerships, infant mortality is now down to 11%. So we know it's possible if we can work together. If you work on one systemic issue all together at the same time and, and prioritize it, you can do it. We know that it's possible. You just have to change so you the have lens an opinion for about what 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 do you uh, what do you attribute the loss or the drop in infant mortality to? Was it make your day? Was it sister friends? Uh, I think what it's was all the of it. I think it's all of it. I think it's all of it. I think every there were so many different infant mortality programs. All the hospitals got involved. There were the public health organization, Department of Public Health at the state, the county, and the and our city department got involved department, yeah. and reduced those numbers. Yeah. Can I ask the question though? Infant yeah. mortality, like nobody wants babies to die, right? 
if you can stop a baby dying, there's nobody who loses anything, right? I mean, everybody gains. It's one of those win, 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 wins all around. If you create economic equity and you take your focus away from a certain population and decide you're gonna have some type of reparative policy, that means that somebody else is no longer gonna be prioritized in your public policy. And there's that tension between should we focus on building um, greenways and river walks and parks with soccer and other things that are attractive to the new people moving in? You know, like, I'm just wondering when is the city gonna build new basketball courts and parks? They're not putting basketball courts anywhere that I can see. And um, there's gotta be a reason for it. I just, who plays basketball? We like, do we black people like there? soccer. We like soccer, Don. Oh, yes, they, yes, we do. You know, listen, my granddaughter is taking soccer classes. But when you are in a city where we're not building new courts and the courts are old, you know, um, and I'm not going to name parks, but I live near some of them where we put a lot of investment in. And basketball is always the last thing that we do. We actually have lacrosse fields and we have skate parks and no basketball. And I've heard residents talk about the need to build new basketball courts. But anyway, and I've heard people come to me and complain about that. We're building it for a reason this way. And there's thinking that goes behind um, how we choose to invest even in our public amenities that I think um, happens in cities across America. When you have an, an intent on attracting a new population, you create amenities that are attracted to that new population. Yeah. And so I think that if you're really talking about economic justice, somebody else is not going to have their priorities elevated it's, over uh, the priorities of other people. Well, when you, when you talk about equity, that you somebody's going to have to give up something, and that's that's the tension point. Nobody would want to give up. Uh, power doesn't want to give up power for equity. It wants to be beholden to its power, and that's why. It, it, it has to be enshrined in policy. <laughs> I, think, I think where we are right now is Detroit isn't gonna win unless it starts, it has to start looking internally right now. They're not, the region is not going to improve. The city is certainly not going to improve unless you start making these kinds of bold, organized, strategic actions. And I think you're starting to see it. There's a level of tension and uncomfortableness that we haven't seen in a really long time. And I, I think that, you know, even the role, Donna, you mentioned CDOs, but we didn't get into the role of CDOs. I think CDOs are critical right now. Community development organizations are going to be critical to the improvement of, of Detroit neighborhoods. That's what's going to draw all this creative financial tools that you're talking about. It's going to be community development organizations that actually create that security, create that buffer, that drive those programs, that create these, these neighborhoods where you can grow without having to leave the city. You can, in, your income can grow and you don't have to move to Southfield. Yeah, because I don't, I don't want to move to Southfield. I want to stay. Southfield is ready for you, Orlando. I don't want it. I don't want it. Hazel Park, 
Ferndale, they've all reached out. They've all reached out and have said, tell us what to do, Anika. We will take all of your Black people that can afford to live out here. They're ready. They want I have a fat. I have a family member who was looking for a home at around between twelve and fourteen hundred dollars a month, um, and looked so hard in the city of Detroit, and ended up almost signing a lease in Southfield before finding a place. You know, I mean, at the last minute, but it shouldn't be that hard for somebody to pay fourteen hundred dollars a month with good credit and a good job work history. Um, it doesn't make sense that you can't find quality housing here for that amount of money. Um, there's some other data that your office produced that really showed the rental housing prices have mm -hmm. increased, but the cost burden on rentals have decreased. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Cost burdens are going down till you realize that the renting population has really been transformed over these past few years. And the folks who are renting, as you pointed out, are young white people moving here or snowbirds moving here and taking up space and they're not cost burden because they can afford it. We are yeah. pricing out people. And it's interesting to me, a couple things come to mind. One is when you stake your claim on population growth, you haven't had it. And that's largely because some people can't afford to stay here. That's one thing that springs to mind. The next thing that springs to mind is the census and the continued clarion mm. call that if you don't, fill out the census, the city is going to lose money. And I would hear from people, well, the city's not spending its money on me anyway. Why should I care? Mm. So there has to be that bond. And unfortunately, we won't have another. We have nine more years before we can fix that. But the bond of trust, the bond of um, the social compact and the social contract between city government and residents feels like, for some of us, it's broken. One of the things I always like to point out is that the property tax rate does not vary based on where you live, but the willingness of government to invest in where you live varies based on where you live. Wow. So why should I pay the exact same property taxes as you and the city's fixing your sidewalks and tearing down your Ted trees and willing to ask investors to come in and fix up your neighborhood? then now should get a tax break, right? But no, instead, in, in many instances, in way too many instances, the city is also subsidizing to, to, through tax breaks. Almost all of the housing is being built, not just affordable housing, all of the housing. Ha get some type of tax incentive or land incentive in order to happen. And so it's not as though, this, as though the city's not putting its money somewhere. The question is, is it putting it in the right place? And the final thing I wanna say is that there's vacancies. We overbuilt for a population that we just thought was gonna stream into the city and the minute trouble hit, folks went back home to their parents' houses and they haven't come back yet. And so you have vacancies all over the city and you have future developments that are also at risk because we were building for a population that does not have the same bond with us as long-term Detroiters. If you can repair that and strengthen that bond, I absolutely think you're right. I think you've got to make that case. And it sounds like you are just going a long way towards making the case that we've got to fix this piece to fix our region. We do. And so I hope it's listened to. Um, you are an optimist. I love that about you. You see good in people. And I think that um, if you don't, that means that you're not going to make demands on them. And so I appreciate the fact that you see and you're willing to make those demands and invest in that through your organization. We need this. 
that means so much coming from you, Donna. It really, really does. I appreciate that. I feel like we can, I, I, I do feel like we're at this precipice, right? We had the honor, and I know we're wrapping up, but um, my team and I had the honor of presenting the report to the Federal Reserve Bank. Oh yeah, that happened. Here in Detroit. Rick Mattoon and his team, and they want to do it, you know, and the Federal Reserve is the bank's bank, right? Like that's who all the banks report to. They said, we want to help, let's figure this out together. Let's do it. We know that there has to be a reparative, there has to be reparative policy if we're going to see this kind of systemic change. I'm hanging on to that. Yeah. You know, and, and I agree with that. You know, I'll say that my sister, you, you I always think of you as my little sister, right? And yes. so, you know, my younger sister, Betty Ann Elizabeth, you know, she's always such an optimist. She thinks so highly. And we've been having these debates since we were little kids, you know, <laughs> and somewhere in the middle between, you know, mistrust and trust between belief and concern, you're going to find a solution. That's right. You've got to get there. And, you know, it's we, we've been doing this forever. So I feel like this conversation is an outgrowth of a family dinner table conversation we've been having. I'm so <laughs> glad. Now, before, before we wrap, we have one more question from oh. uh, Instagram Live. Uh, Chase Cantrell asked another question around your point about uh, CDOs playing a major role in this, this new economy, this new equitable economy that we're trying to create. And he asks, does the administration trust community development organizations or does the administration see community development orgs as competition? Have we resolved that tension? And I'll, you know, I'll pose that to mm. the both of you because both of you are in the thick of that, especially you, Donna, uh, being over a CDO. So I'll, so I'll, I'll start. Let Courtney answer that first. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, here's what I think. I think that um, there was a time when the planning department, this was very early in the administration, had a narrative that CDOs did not have the capacity to do development work. And the only way to get things done was through private development. And that narrative, which carried through for several years, I think is, is hard to uh, unpack and, and, and just go do away with. And what I think now, because I think A, there's hurt feelings, right? If somebody is telling you that your industry doesn't have the capacity to do what it's designed to do, there's a level of trust that's there. But I also think that the city is at a point where they are recognizing the value of community development partners and community development um, leadership and uh, different roles that you need multiple roles in order to make all of this work. So I think that I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily agree that the issue is that the city sees CDOs as competition, I think that there's some relationship building and trust building that has to be renewed between CDOs and the city. 
And I think a lot of us have been pushing this from multiple sides um, and, until we get there. But um, that's, that's my take on it. Well, my, my take is this, that, um, that we have district city councils members, you know, for the first time, you know, recent history, I think it was 2013 or 2014, we voted in by district. I don't remember the exact year, um, but it, we, it's, it's only been, you know, let's see, what time, when was it? I think it was 13. 13, yeah, 2013. So we're about, you know, eight years into this experiment. And when you had um, city council by district, all of a sudden they had staff <laughs> and their staff were trying to figure out their role inside the community. And then Duggan was elected. And when he was elected, he set up these district managers and then they had assistant managers and they were in communities and it felt like who's on first, okay? Who gets to decide what happens in this neighborhood? Um, and then you had the neighborhood-based studies that were going on and who's going to convene the community to talk about community needs, whose report matters. I remember when you and I sat down and we were just trying to have conversations with the city about the master plan and our neighborhood reports. And we had people from the city saying, well, we're not going to create reports unless we have all of the money. We've raised all of the money. Right. And what can you do? You know, and all of this ridiculous, you know, propaganda that was spoken. And then you have projects like the Fitzgerald project, which overpromised what was going to happen inside of a neighborhood, and to some extent set up the folks who were there to deliver on that. Um, so I think that um, as things have shaken out, though, city government has found its limitations and has learned that you know you're not going to be able to turn things over uh, over overnight. And the other thing is that the community development sector has become so much more creative, so much more collaborative so much more intentional about how we do work. And so we are a better sector than we were 10 years ago. I'm certain of it. I mean, I was in community development and you were. The way that people come up with ideas and solve problems and the engagement of residents in the process. Uh, we mm. have initiatives like the Detroit Residents First Fund and you have initiatives like building the engine for community development in Detroit. See that has changed. And so I think we are much more formidable as an industry. Try overlooking us now, right? Right. When you come into our neighborhoods, chances are we got the folks, okay? So you have to somehow figure that one out in order to make it happen. And then the final thing I want to say is that the sector is changing. And those of us who are longtime community development activists have to understand that building community development is community development. It's not your traditional CDO community development, but what Chase is doing on McNichols, I always want to call it Six Mile on McNichols, is um, community <laughs> development. It is really changing the face of that neighborhood. It's nonprofit, it's done differently. Yeah. Um, and so we have so much innovation. I really think millennials are so much, so innovative and they're pushing us to think about our work differently. Um, welcome. I am so proud to be, I'm so proud to be a member of this sector and to work with the people that we are. Um, and so I think that, we can't be overlooked. I want to shout out the foundation community. The foundation community really said, we're going to invest in community development anyway. Yeah. There was a person who used to work for the city who told me that they controlled all of the foundation spending and the foundations would not spend money in any, any neighborhoods and on anybody um, unless this person gave them permission and directed them there. 
And at that point, the foundations doubled down and spent more money and more money. The community development fund has grown. There used to be 21 community development organizations supported through this fund. Now it's probably up to 25, including those who come to our meetings. So the Detroit 21 is kind of like the Big Ten. You just keep the old name because you, know, you don't want to change it, but the Big Ten has more than 10, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think it's all of that. I think our sector has grown. We're closer to foundations. And even some of the CDFIs are really trying to figure out how they can be more impactful in our community. So um, now I'm sounding optimistic like Anika. But my optimism does not come from, <laughs> it doesn't come from my belief necessarily in the political forces, but in the power of the people who are in our community to really challenge their um, hold on power. That puts a tremendous- And you know, Detroit Future Cities is another force, right? Detroit Future Cities is producing data, is helping us think. And so we're not just arguing opinions, but we actually can back them up with something and keeping yeah. us- um, this the shared growth so that we are a learning community of developers. Yes. That puts a great button on this conversation. Um, thank you. We want to let you know that you can check out the Detroit Future City, the State of Economic Equity in Detroit report. Just head on over to DetroitFutureCity.com. We'll also drop it uh, in the link of this podcast. Uh, really uh, want to thank Anika Doss, for hanging out with us today. That's my shout out. Actually, I want to shout out both Mrs. <laughs> Davidson and Anika Goss. Let me tell you what just happened. This was a masterclass, right? For somebody like me and for some of the folks that are listening in on, you know, on Instagram. Like I have all my questions and I have my outlook for my little 10 years in the sector. But this, the history, the deep history that you all have. Uh, at the front of your minds and the, the way that you interpret work, the way that you interpret data coupled with your lived experience as a Detroiter and your lived experience as a professional within the community development sector for years on end is absolutely masterful. It was masterful listening to the both of you uh, debate these data sets and go back and forth and affirm it. You know, it what a time, I cannot wait for people to listen um, to this podcast. So shout out to two amazing Black women that I look up to, uh, Anika Goss and Donna Givens-Davison. Shout out to- Orlando. Shout out <laughs> Thank to you so much. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Not to, to feed my daughter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, can I just shout out Bridge Detroit? I just want to shout yes. out Bridge Detroit. Heads off to Bridge Detroit. Listen, nine times out of 10, I have a Bridge Detroit article I want to bring because Bridge Detroit is bringing the kind of news I need to read. Um, they ask, they, they, they publish the stories to answer the questions. And so being an information junkie like I am, um, being part of Bridge Detroit um, on the advisory committee or whatever it is, I'm just so proud to be part of it. I'm proud to contribute to the work. I'm proud of the fact that Orlando Bailey was raised up at ECN and is now at Bridge Detroit, even though he still works at ECN. So we have to figure that one out. And still works with us on Authentically Detroit. And Anika, I'm just so excited by the work. I just feel as though um, when people talk about Detroit Future City, they have no idea what you've done between when you got there and now. That's we right. started That's almost right. at the same time ago in 2016. You may have gotten there in late 2015, 
but we walked in our doors at the same time and, and there was this need to reinvent our organizations um ecn had done a great job laying the groundwork and i think the detroit future cities had really created this big footprint but it was not clear what the role of Detroit Future Cities was going to be. Is it going to be a, to facilitate gentrification or equity? And you have made it very clear that you're about equity and um, done so with all the optimism and tech and a great staff team. So um, thank, thank you. you for joining us once again and um, for just being available. You are phenomenally Black. That's what's on your t-shirt. So yes. I want to call mm -hmm. that out. And yes, I love the shirt. <laughs> feed your daughter. <laughs> That's a good one, guys. Thank, Thank you so much you for listening. So much. Catch the wave, everybody. Thank you.